You're listening to the Language Leaders Podcast. Hi, and welcome to the Language Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Escher. I'm also the CEO of LearnCube, a virtual classroom software business made for language businesses. Now, today I am talking with Katie Brown. Katie is the founder and chief education officer at Engine, and it's on a mission to empower immigrants, refugees, and speakers of other languages with English skills that they need for inclusion and economic mobility. Katie also has a PhD in second language acquisition from the University of Maryland and has eight years experience as well as the Chief Education Officer at Voxy. So I'm really excited to have you. Thanks so much for joining us, Katie. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. You've started Engine, and can you just share some key milestones in your career that really shaped your approach to language education? Sure. So it probably started with my own experience with language education. I was a language learner before a language teacher. <laughs> I was a Spanish major in college, and I went to Chile afterwards and actually taught English there. And I didn't really know what I was doing. I had volunteered as an English teacher, as an undergraduate. I worked with Mexican migrant workers on an apple orchard. And I realized I had no idea how to teach anybody anything, but it was sort of expected that because I spoke Spanish, I should be able to teach English. So after this experience, backpacking around and teaching English very poorly, I thought I should understand more about how language learning works. And I went and I did a master's degree in theoretical linguistics, which will tell you how little I knew about how language learning works and what theoretical linguistics was. While it was very interesting, it was absolutely not related whatsoever to how people learn second languages. So I learned a lot about first language acquisition wow. and cognition, but that was like a really critical milestone where I was sort of like, okay, I picked the wrong thing to study. And then I went and I taught English at a community college. I worked in higher ed and I started working on my PhD at that point in second language acquisition specifically, mostly because what I learned in a classroom about cognition, language learning, second language learning had very little to do with what I saw happening in classrooms with people who were actually trying to learn languages. Were there any other kind of milestones along your career or any kind of aha moments for you that has made you even think about you know, when you started Engine, like, hey, this is the way that we want to go, and even with Voxy before? Well, it's that most Americans will tell you they took five years of Spanish and they can't say anything. And what we teach people is the wrong thing. And we know this based on all of the research that I did when I was working on my academic training. So there is a real opportunity to help people learn languages better. And that's what I've always been focused on trying to do. So even before I worked at Voxy, I worked on large scale government funded initiatives to do Spanish training actually for US government workers. I worked on a project that was jointly funded by the University of Maryland in the Department of Defense, looking at people who were able to get high levels of language acquisition in foreign languages. I've always been focused on the intersection between language aptitude, cognition, and technology, and like what we can do with technology to make learning outcomes better. I'm going to pick on the something you just said then, though, was why do we have this experience that so many of us share, which is I spent five years learning this language and I can't remember a single thing. So what are the things that you've noticed that people are really getting wrong? Language is a skill and we have to approach it that way. And it's yeah. uncomfortable 
to teach people hard skills. When you go to teach someone a language and you teach them a list of vocabulary words and some grammar rules, that's easy. I can teach you these rules. I can check a box whether or not you can regurgitate them. I can see whether or not you filled in the gaps. But I'm not actually giving you the tools that you need to use the language to do something real. What you need to do is go speak the language to a person or understand what someone's saying to you. You should be doing something entirely different. You should be listening to an example of someone speaking the language. You should be trying to use the language yourself. And those things are a lot harder to do in a classroom. And they're also a lot harder for the learner. When you start speaking a new language, you're horrible at it. You don't understand anything. Nothing you say makes sense. You sound like a fool. And adults don't like that. But they like filling in boxes and they like reading dialogues that someone else wrote. And sort of just carrying on with that same line of thinking, knowing your background and with that PhD, what were the unexpected challenges you had then from going from like, I'm a language learner, I go through that process, I become a language teacher, I go through that process, I go into my PhD, I go into quite a theoretical kind of background. And then now, I mean, particularly with Voxy and, and certainly now in your entrepreneurial journey with Engine, really as, as practical as you can get it from a business commercial front. So how did you find that academia to business I will say that business appreciates practical information in a way that academia does not. When you are trained as an academic researcher and you have a PhD, you're very used to doing a lot of research before you do anything, making sure you have all of the data to support your decisions. And honestly, people in academia tend to communicate in a way that is not necessarily accessible or user-friendly. That was actually never me. I used to get feedback that my writing continued to lack sophistication because I like to write things in an accessible way. But I did learn that it's much easier to make business decisions because there's a lot less rigor around the type of academic research you would need to make those decisions in academia. I also learned that the focus on outcomes, that's very important to me, is not always very important to other stakeholders. And that there's a disconnect often in product development, especially with educational technology products, where product owners and product designers are focused on whether or not the user likes the experience. Whereas if you want people to learn they might have to have an experience that they don't necessarily like. Getting back to my earlier point around things needing to be hard. So we can use technology to make them fun. We can use technology to make it interesting. We can use technology to personalize the intervention. But at the end of the day, you still need to go through the uncomfortable feelings of trying to use a language that you don't yet speak. Yeah, it's almost like you're trying to hush around the subject, you know, with either distractions or little gizmos that are sort of happening. But in the end, something needs to happen. Something needs to change. Yeah, it still needs to be hard. It's like going yeah. to the gym. If you go to the gym and you don't sweat and get out of breath and think it's really difficult, you're not really making any progress. Because but you, you could have a great time there. You could watch some shows, you know, have, and, some uh, snack. have, have a snack. <laughs> have a snack while you're there. Have a drink of water. Don't worry about it. You know, we're going to make sure you have the best gym experience you can. Yes. Uh, and some people pay for that and that's what they want to have. And they don't care that they aren't going and getting a good workout in. But if they took a physical fitness test, they wouldn't be able to show that they had made proficiency gains in their physical fitness. And it's the same thing with learning a language. If you go and it's easy, then you just stay at the same level. I really like that point. I might come back to that as well. Obviously, that's quite a challenging thing as well then to how do we prove efficacy as well? 
Yeah. Um, and that's probably one of the things that was most challenging when I first started working in educational technology is mm. that you have to put a lot of rigor and thought into how you're going to test outcomes and build them into your product design, because doing it after the fact is really difficult. And doing user testing for things, users don't always know what's best for them. When we do testing for medical, when we test drugs in medical trials, we're not asking the people who are taking the drugs, like, which ones they want mm. and if they enjoy the taste of them. We're looking to see if their symptoms change. And it's the same thing that we should be doing. It doesn't matter if they think the activity is fun, if the activity isn't actually going to teach them. If we know that we have two activities that will equally deliver results, then yes, let's test which one is more fun. Let's test which is easier to use. Let's test how the directions work. But that frame is not always used in product design for educational technology. I also think one of the things that you might have changed in, in your kind of approach to, to founding Engine as well, but I know from talking with many companies that, yeah, that stakeholder, call it conflict or tension is something very real because everyone's got a different scorecard that they're going after, whether it be a financial scorecard that they're based against or other things. And everyone's fighting for their scorecard and that can create some, any kind of, and in any business, but certainly in, in language education. How did you find that experience as well? I mean, I founded Engine specifically as a public benefit company. Yeah. And then I went through the really rigorous process to become certified as a B Corp because our mission is incredibly important to us. And I wanted yeah. it that to be clear to investors, to employees, to stakeholders, that our goal is to remove English as a barrier. And in order to do that, we need to measure whether or not we've done it. And that is important to the success of our organization. Let's dig into Engine. Tell me about that founding experience. And you'll probably think about it for quite some time even before you pull the trigger or is it like, no, actually, I see the opportunity. Let's go. No, I thought about it for a long time. So remember, yeah. I started working with Mexican migrant workers on an apple orchard in the US. And then I actually taught ESL at a community college outside of DC for three years mm -hmm. before I got my PhD. So I had spent a lot of time working with immigrants, refugees, and speakers of other languages in the US. And I mm -hmm. saw that there was a huge opportunity, that we weren't, as a country, meeting their needs Often they end up going to free classes. There aren't enough programs that exist to help them. And then the ones that do exist are often, as we discussed earlier, not great. They're teaching people how to name the names of the animals at the zoo or understanding the, the colors and the days of the week. And they're not really focused on the English people need for inclusion in the workforce. So that is the problem that I had always wanted to solve. While I was working at Voxy, I did a lot of work with Voxy's founder and CEO raising money for Voxy. And at one point we had raised around from a strategic investor that really wanted to focus on immigrants in the U.S. And I took that on as my own project within Voxy. So it was Voxy's New Americans Initiative, which was how Engine got started. So mm -hmm. I started it and incubated it inside of Voxy. I found a new business partner and raised a Series A during the pandemic to carve it out as a standalone business. Voxy's mission was global language learning and teaching English to people outside the United States. And teaching people English to people inside the U.S. is very, very different. The needs of people who are learning English outside the U.S. because they want to get a promotion at work, to get a role where that requires that they communicate in English, they want to travel to the U.S., they live in a country where some level of English proficiency is required for graduation. Those are all completely different from someone who has immigrated here and who needs English skills to enroll their kids in school, to get a better job, to get relaxed licensed in the U.S. Like the U.S. has 2 million immigrants who are unemployed or underemployed, often because English is a barrier to using the skills and credentials they have from their home country. So it's solving a completely different problem. And that's why ultimately 
I founded it as a separate company because our company's goals are different. And you've already made that so clear, even just in your decisions with, of the B Corp and, and many other decisions around your mission. Out of interest, how was that experience with raising capital? Well, I had done it. I, I had been part of a lot of raising capital, yeah. but as, as an expert, I was never there as the sole person raising the capital. Yeah. I was there as a member of the leadership team who has a background in the field. I've, I've actually been brought in on a number of language deals with other investors as an expert evaluator of other people's pitches. For somebody who never thought that they were going to leave academia and work in a commercial capacity, I have a lot more experience with um, private equity and venture capital than I ever would have expected. But being the person raising it on my own, I loved it. I loved it because I had over two decades of experience in solving the problem that I was raising capital to solve. I had already shown that I knew how to use technology to solve this problem at scale. I knew that we had product market fit and I knew what the market in the United States needed. And so I was able to explain the vision for the company and the work that we do in a way that resonated with the investors. And honestly, raising money during COVID was amazing because I didn't leave my bedroom. So I did yeah, it all over Zoom. It sounds like you possibly had some existing connections to be able to reach out to, but that's usually one of the biggest barriers, right? Is to get the meeting in the first place. Yeah. And, you know, I had some existing connections, but I was actually really looking for, I wanted investors when I was founding Engine who valued the social mission of what we were doing. So I was looking for impact investors, not looking for traditional ed tech investors or traditional just VC, you know, look, we'll, we want a technology product. I really wanted my investors to understand what we were trying to build, that it is an education company, that these things take more time, that it wasn't going to be Instagram. And I wanted to make sure the investors had wanted the social impact to be important to them. It sounds like you were successful with that. And that's probably made things a lot easier because I think having the wrong people on that ship would have made that. Going back to that stakeholder problem, that's often where it starts. The investment needs a return and then everything suddenly changes from that impact. And like we have an impact section in, of every one of our board decks. I file an annual impact report. We field a worker survey. I think we're probably the only organization. So far this year, I've almost 2,000 immigrants, refugees, and speakers of other languages who've responded to our survey of the 15 or 20,000 we served last year, giving us feedback on how the program has helped them with their careers, how it's helped them with their integration goals, how it's helped them specifically with things like enrolling their kids in school, helping their kids with homework, getting access to training and credentials. No one else is fielding a survey like that and certainly not using it to inform strategic directions for the company. Yeah. And actually, out of curiosity, do those investors that you brought on, other than having that as a clear part of what they were buying into, do they act quite differently accordingly? Or is it just more that understanding that things will take longer and actually we don't want to just give up on impact so that we can grow a, another 5% this quarter? Yeah, that, that's exactly what you just said. Okay, great. I know that you would have already gone through so many. Actually, just get the date in mind. When did you found Engine then? Engine became its own company on October 31st, 2020. So we just had our third birthday. And so over three years, undoubtedly, I know this as a founder of Lunky myself, like there's got to be some highs and lows. What would be your pick of one high and pick one low? There are so many highs to choose from. I don't even know how to choose one. I honestly think the biggest high is watching the growth and seeing the momentum increase. So when I first founded Engine, there were five of us. And yeah. now there are 27 of us. 
when I first founded Engine, I had tiny little deals that have now grown to, you know, I have state level contracts with multiple states in the United States where the departments of labor and the offices of new Americans are investing in upskilling for their constituents. Whereas when I first started, I, I took any deal that I could take. And Lowe's, I, I really struggle with this because everyone has them, but I tend to not try to look at, I don't dwell on the Lowe's. One of our company values is to be nimble yeah. and quickly move things if they aren't working. And so I can't pick a low. I can say that we've tried some things. One, one of the things that is really important to the work that we're doing is that we offer bilingual wraparound support services to learners, especially if they're using our platform in a way that doesn't come with any support. So if I'm working with a school and they have teachers, or if I'm working with a refugee resettlement organization, they have case managers, they do that support. But if I'm working with an employer and this is an educational benefit that's being offered and there's no support services, we don't see the kind of engagement that we want to see. So we've experimented with several different models of how to offer bilingual learner support coaching and how to do it at scale. I guess a low would be we first tried something that we were calling jumpstart to try to coach multiple learners at once and we weren't getting the uptake that we needed. So we're now in like our third revision of jumpstart. You fail fast, pivot, if something doesn't work, try something else. Yeah, totally right. I think this would be a moment just to quickly identify what does Engine do, just so we're kind of clear in our minds what kind of services you're providing. At the core, we have a web and mobile platform yep. that has contextualized, adaptive, dynamic English lessons. We also offer bilingual learner support, institutional needs assessment for our corporate clients. So we've built customized language learning programs for corporations. Chobani is one of them. And where we are taking their internal content and turning it into lessons that their frontline workers are using. So we do that whole piece of understanding what kind of a job the entry-level workers would have, what the next step is for them, and how do we build English training that helps them get from point A to point B. So we do that with dozens of corporate clients. And then we also offer professional development for teachers who are using it, professional development for educational institutions that are using it. We integrate with existing programs. We're really trying to nimbly fit into all of the gaps in the ecosystem in the United States that is not well-serving speakers of other languages who need to get English skills to get better jobs. A big part is clearly around the platform and this asynchronous lessons. Yes. And then there's still, of course, some component, which is the, do you call it, is it coaching others that actually provide the teaching or is it yourselves also providing the teaching at scale? It's both. So we have all different kinds of teaching models. So I have yeah. big open classes with hundreds of learners. I have small group classes. I have individual classes. We have classes that are done for specific clients. As you know, one size does not fit all when it comes to language learning. And so yeah. what we try to do is leverage technology to have as much scale as possible and as be as personalized as possible at the same time. Now, this is great. I can clearly see how you're, you're using technology to really hit your purpose. And Actually, you've kind of told us what inspired you. What do you think that are really the challenges that certainly immigrants and refugees face that are kind of overlooked? And why is this a market and an opportunity in the first place? There are a couple of things. One is that if you've ever moved to another country where you don't speak the language, it's incredibly difficult to do anything. And most immigrants and refugees to the United States don't have the luxury of time to sort of think about. They have to start working right away. Our refugee resettlement system requires that newcomers start working within 90 days of arrival, 
which means they often end up working in jobs that require very little in the way of English, but also offer very little opportunity for them to mm. practice English, to acquire English skills. And they can't attend traditional community college ESL classes that meet Monday, Wednesday, Friday from 11 to 12, 15 or whatever it is. And so they just get stuck because they don't have any time or resources to improve their English, which means they can't get out of those first jobs. So they need somebody advocating for them mm -hmm. as they're getting English skills so that they can begin to advocate for themselves. Now, again, I've done this work my literal entire career, and I will tell you in the last three or four years, labor market changes, global migration changes, and just the job market in the United States, along with what COVID did to educational technology and the widespread acceptance of technology as a means to offer meaningful instruction have changed things completely. And right now what I'm seeing are employers that are willing to make an investment in English upskilling because they see that by 2030, 97% of net workforce growth in the U.S. will be immigrants and their children, and that if they want to be able to have a talent pool to draw on, they have to start building it themselves. Also, higher ed is in crisis, which is like another compounding factor. So we're in a place right now in the U.S. where we have never been before, and that is really making it a perfect place for this kind of language upskilling to work. Tell us what actually is necessary then, like you mentioned something different needs to happen. So what is that something different in your case? How do we overcome those challenges? We need a, an ecosystem approach to helping newcomers get access to English skills. And it can't just be like employers are doing a lot of the heavy lifting right now. Walmart, Amazon's career choice program, Target's educational benefit program. They employ thousands and thousands of workers across the country, and they make foundational English upskilling available to all of them. McDonald's with their English Under the Arches program. So there are big corporate clients that are looking at this, but that isn't enough. We need smaller employers to be able to offer programs like this. And we need a better collaboration between English upskilling and access to career training. And we need language training to be better in general. The U.S. is, I don't know where it is now in terms of its population and which Spanish-speaking country we are, but we're like the fourth largest or third largest Spanish-speaking country in the world, but we're hopelessly monolingual. Like our Spanish speakers speak Spanish because they come from countries that speak Spanish and because they've kept it up as a heritage language, not because we're doing a great job of learning Spanish here. And we yeah. need to be a lot better at helping everybody learn languages because multilingualism and bilingualism is a benefit. And helping immigrants and refugees get access to English skills is building a bilingual labor market that we need. Well said. Very curious then on... So you've obviously built this technology or, or and I think I can continuing to build it. Did you have to start it from scratch or did you have to, did you modify what you were already using in advance? Yeah, yeah, I modified what I was already using. That was part of the deal when we created Engine. Yeah. And it would have also meant that you'd, it must have uh, fast-tracked a lot of what you did, right? Yes, it did. And because, I mean, I was the designer of the technology that Voxy was using and I had multiple patents on the underlying algorithms that power yeah. the personalization. So we were able to start with what I'd already built. I, I want to jump onto that. I'm very curious about the patent aspect. I think a lot of the time, particularly in technology, sometimes things are moving so fast that sometimes you don't think about going for patents and those sorts of things. I think investors like patents. I think patents, yeah, no, investors do. What was your experience in actually going through that process? Was it a pain, yeah. right? Yeah, a huge one. Yeah. 
and involved like conversations with patent examiners and justifications for why things should be patentable and not patentable. And in the 10 years since I first wrote the patents, like what qualifies as a technology patent is changed. And I'm not a lawyer and like there's a reason why. And all of it just seems so horrible and boring to me. And then I found myself like authoring a patent. Wow. I have them in a stack somewhere. Out of curiosity, what use have you found from them? People think it's cool. I, I just wanted to make sure I wasn't going astray. I was like, I know that they're they're cool. I just, I haven't seen them in use or heard of anyone pushing their passion, I mean, quite honestly. I think it's a cool thing to say that you did. It's nice yeah. to contribute something that is unique to the field. When I first got the patents, I was the yeah. only person talking about using AI and machine learning for personalization of language learning. So I'm yeah. proud of the fact that I thought of it and I built something that did it and I was able to document it in a way that was accepted by the Patent and Trademark Office just because it's a different way of thinking about language learning. Wow. Okay. That's a really good perspective. Another thing you had to do, and you kind of mentioned it earlier, was the B Corp. Now that sounds similarly terrible, meaningful, yeah. but also horrible in terms of form yes. filling and everything else that needs to go into that compliance. And not just form filling, very detailed form filling. And then like every answer to every question and every form, checking it over with the person, verifying the lists of all my clients to make sure that what I said about the clients that I was serving was actually accurate. It is not for the faint of heart. Right. Okay. So that's the good takeaway is, yeah, not for the faint of heart. It was important to me to do it. So I did it. But as you can see, I've done a lot of like arduous, terrible things. I mean, I got a PhD. I have a bunch of patents. I yeah, you like doing hard stuff. I get it. Go big or go home. Yeah. But one of the things I... I kind of got from you going the B Corp route is it helps you structure your business in a way that signals to everyone past and future, this is what we're about and this is where yeah. we're going. Is that how you viewed it or what was your main reason yeah. for going down this other hard path? You know, when I first left academia and I went to industry, the, one of the things that I noticed was that education providers, all of a sudden I became a new thing. I became a vendor and vendors are terrible. Like, mm -hmm. oh. That that tables for the vendors or the vendors get their badges there and like vendor. It's like a, a bad. I was like, whoa, who knew I became a vendor and vendors are bad. And that which is really annoying to me. Like, I don't like labels. And also yeah. I'm the same person as I was when I was actually interviewing vendors yeah. about whether or not we should use their products. And yeah. there are plenty of vendors I've met over the years who have PhDs and tons of experience and want to share what they know about how things work with other people. So like that sort of gets my hackles up. And I was sick of being treated as a vendor. And it occurred to me that if we were a certified B Corp, we would have an external validator saying that what we were doing was good. In addition, we're like yeah. English learning provider that's on digital promises page for being a research, a research backed organization, an organization with a research approach. I've had a third party empirical study done by American Institutes for Research. I've published in half a dozen academic journals data that show that my product and pedagogy and platform yield learning outcomes. I just like to have the bona fides to get to explain when someone tries to be dismissive immediately because, oh, you're a vendor. So you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, I, I guess what you're coming is you're, you're a contributor to this ecosystem and you're a contributor yes. to this solution that you're trying to get to. Yes. You've said two things that are interesting as well. One was the research. Let's talk about that. How do you go about creating some kind of research that shows what you do is effective? 
that is the, an excellent question that I have been working on for as many years as I've not been in academia. So the way you do it is you either find academic researchers who want to use the data that you're generating and have the data that you're generating be something useful to them so that they will look at it and publish something about it. I think Immerse, the virtual reality company, is doing this right now. That appears to be their strategy. They've got a bunch of academic partners that are like using data from people using the VR technology mm -hmm. and publishing research on it. So that's one way of doing it. You can also commission the study. If you do that, you need to commission it from an actual like reputable university or a third party research organization. Just hiring like a researcher to do it for you that it's sort of worth the paper that it's written on because you need to make sure that the research that you're getting is peer reviewed. Yeah. So companies that hire researchers to say things and put them on their websites, but there's no peer review process. That's not really particularly useful. Like the, the reason why getting published academic research is so great is because mm -hmm. it necessarily went through a peer-reviewed process in order to be held up as something that is reputable, which is what would happen if you did it with like a, a like an American Institutes for Research or like a third-party research organization. So it sounds like, yeah, option A sounds like the best that you've found, which is find a, somebody that's interested in the data that you have and then let them not only do the work, but also, you know, I guess expose <laughs> expose yeah. that opportunity right and see what you have to be willing work. you have to be willing to accept what those researchers find yeah go on to that next point that you mentioned before you were evaluating other commercially available language learning products is what you say on your on your linkedin profile as well so what does that mean and then how were you evaluating them so i was doing that while i worked at the university of maryland okay and one of the research projects that I worked on was commercially available language learning products that the U.S. government had purchased, mm -hmm. and they wanted to know whether or not those products were worthwhile. So what I did was establish an evaluation framework, and we started with identifying all of the things that we know are necessary for language learning to happen. Mm -hmm. And then we evaluated the tools to see how many of those things they had. Because the tools were digital and technology mediated, we also looked at all of the things you need for technology mediated tools to be useful. Mm -hmm. And we checked to see if the tools had all of those things. So assuming someone uses the tool, does it have the theoretical underpinnings to be successful? And right. then for some of the projects, we actually conducted an empirical study where we had workers for the U.S. government who were paid to use the products as part of their jobs. And we evaluated with pre and post assessments how useful the products were. That's pretty significant then, yeah. Like when I say that I've thought about this a lot, I've really thought about this a lot. And that would be a pretty chunky list. And do you mind providing some sort of inklings of what the, what were on those lists? I actually published one of the papers. So one of the products that I evaluated was an early version of Rosetta Stone. Okay. And this most significant finding of that study was severe participant attrition. So of 150 volunteers who agreed to use the software to learn another language while at work, only one of them actually completed the full protocol. Mm -hmm. And in an interview with that one learner, he said it teaches you a lot of words, but they aren't the words you need to have a conversation. And this, these were career language learners. Many of them had gone through language training for their careers and were learning another language on top of it. 
And I'll tell you that the platform, what Rosetta Stone looks like today is probably not what it looked like when we first evaluated it. But this was a two-part process where we looked at Oralog's Tell Me More product and Pimsleur's mm -hmm. product and Rosetta Stone's product and Transparent Languages products. And as part of those evaluations, I reached out to the developers of all of the software to ask them questions because out of context, evaluating how well something works I wanted as much detail as possible about the decisions that had gone into making it and what their product roadmaps looked like. I, I will tell you that only one of the organizations even agreed to have a conversation about it. Yeah. And we went through and did like a full detailed inventory of what was involved in all of those language learning products. And again, there is, a, and I can send you the link to this paper. I published it in Language Learning and Technology mm -hmm. a long time ago, maybe 2013 or 2011, but it goes into a really extensive literature review about what we know you need to have for a language learning product to work. And so when I first designed Voxy, I have another academic paper actually that was published that goes into the theoretical underpinnings of the first version of Voxy. And all of the things that we know you need for language learning to work were part of our design of the product. Well, I'm really looking forward to seeing those sources. It sounds like there's already a, a lot of publicly available information yeah. that we can all learn to make our, our solutions <laughs> yeah. better. Yeah, I have a recommended reading list. Let's get there. Okay. Definitely check out the show notes after this. And one thing I was just going to talk about then is how do you balance that academic rigor then? So you've, you know, again, even just what you've mentioned there sounds remarkable. How do you kind of balance that against, and I think you probably know this even more now with the, the so those practical demands from running a startup? You do the best you can. Like yeah. my favorite is don't let the perfect be the <laughs> enemy of the good. And, okay. you know, close enough is good enough. And sometimes yeah. just need to move forward. Yeah. Like nothing will ever be perfect, but don't do anything that you know is wrong. And if something isn't going to work, don't do that. Like we do know what works for language learning and we know things that don't work for language learning. If you can't make your product the perfect product when you first start out, of course you can't, but you can deliberately not include things that you know will not be good and build an evaluation framework into it. Make sure that you can measure whether or not it works and report on it. Again, just if you have it off the top of your head, what would be the, if there are a couple of things that spring to mind of the things you definitely shouldn't be doing or, because also people will be listening here that don't have a academic background that may have never been teachers, but are working in language education. Ask teachers and ask researchers if you don't know what you're doing. I will say that the thing that I still find the most frustrating when I look at education technology mm -hmm. is when a subject matter expert in education should be included at the table and they're not included at the table. They're brought in as a consultant who doesn't really understand what's going on, or they're like a very junior person who reports several layers up to the head of product. If you're building something that is going to teach people, make sure what you're building is designed to teach people. You don't need to be an expert in what that is, but you need to ask an expert and you need to make sure that it works. I would say that it's not that uncommon for that situation to happen where the developer, the, the engineering team is calling all the shots or the product is calling yes. all the shots. So that's, it's really common, common, I would say. Yeah. yeah. And, and you see it in how things work. I don't pretend to be a product person. I would no. never be head of product for a different type of company, but I do know how language learning works. And yeah. so you need to make sure that whatever product you're building is designed for the language learning part. Somebody yeah. else can figure out the UX design and 
what colors it should be and how the button should work and the, how the mobile app should integrate with the web app. And look, mm -hmm. I, that, that's great. It's someone else's job to do that. But it needs to set up the psycholinguistic environment that's necessary for people to learn languages. And if you don't have somebody that knows that, that's helping inform product decisions, you're unlikely to build a product that will work. And education isn't something that everyone can do. Hire experts. Make sure someone who knows how education works is part of your product design and that you've built outcomes measurement into what you're doing. Yeah. And they're there at the table. Like they're not just down in the back row and say, hey, look, yeah, there we are. Yeah. Got somebody. One of the, the things, and I've said this for years, that we see with technology, technologists like technology. And so they often build things because they're cool. Yeah. And that's great. But you don't build something because it's cool and then hope that it does something useful, you need to know what problem you're solving. Like start yeah. with the goal in mind and build something that makes learning better. Don't just build something because the technology is cool or do, but then use that to sell things on the internet, not to try yeah. to teach people. One of the coolest things, of course, that everyone's talking about is AI and generative AI in particular. You knew that we were going to probably get there in the end. This seems like a good starting point for this. And maybe the last question we have today, how would you then put that into the frame of, okay, still educators know what works. We now have this new technology. Technologists want to throw this technology at literally every single problem, including education. What do we need to, to take, a, take a moment here? So first of all, we need to make sure that we're using it to solve a problem. Yeah. And we can. So as a linguist, I think generative AI is amazing. We have never had computers that could sound like real people before. And it's because they're using these large language models so they actually can string words together in a way that is very human-like. That doesn't mean that the meaning behind the words is human-like. So like, let's mm -hmm. not get carried away. There's no judgment or morality or critical thinking skills happening. We just have something that can sound like a person. And that's a great tool for a language learner. Language learners need to practice with things that sound like people. But we need to make sure that we put guardrails around them. So let's use generative AI for people to practice having conversations conversations. So it's like use it and figure out how it works and use it to give people more access to opportunities to produce the language, to get feedback on the language, to have semi-intelligent tutoring, to get questions answered, but then have an overlay of humans. I've got two other kind of related questions then. First of all, teachers are, are constantly looking for reassurance in this time. Is there something that you would say to them that while all of this is happening in terms of this generative teachers, Yes, we, we, we will always need teachers. And if you think about like uh, older technologies, when calculators first came out, everybody was up in arms and people were going to stop learning how to do arithmetic. And now, and you couldn't have calculators in classrooms. And I'm like, now you, you can't take a math class in high school without buying a graphing calculator. We've made the assignments better. Okay. The challenge to teachers is create assignments that require that you help learners use the AI to do them better. Don't take people away. Make the job of the people more interesting, more personalized, better focused on real world problems. Like we need teachers. We just need teachers to write assignments that cannot just be done with chat GPT. And what would be your, any advice that you would give to new emerging language leaders and leaders that may be starting new businesses? Think about the problem that you're solving. The space is very crowded. Yeah. So think about the technology that we have available to us and what we still need. Find a way to build a product that solves a problem. Perfect note to finish on there, Katie. I really appreciate your time today. How can people first of all find you? And then I will link to the show, but is there also a way that people can find your research? 
Yes. So my LinkedIn, I think actually has everything. And I've tried to put a bunch of my research on LinkedIn, but people can email me and I'll send it to them. Awesome. What a great way to, to, to finish. So definitely yeah. check out Katie Brown at LinkedIn. You'll also find more about Engine at your website, engine.com. GetEngine.com. Someone, Get engine. yeah, someone owns Engine.com and didn't want to sell it. So it's GetEngine.com. Fantastic. So make sure you go to GetEngine.com. And just to finish off the show, thank you so much for listening. If you're interested in listening to more language leaders and our podcast, interviewing the best leaders in language technology, looking for ideas, inspiration, and motivation to start and grow your businesses, please make sure you hit that subscribe button and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much. Thanks, Alex. That was really fun.